Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast has been recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their ongoing connection to land and waters and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi, and welcome to the very first episode of Head Threads. We feel so blessed to find a home here on the radio waves with Area 3000. You can expect to hear from us on a monthly basis as we extend our exploration of the local creative community past the confines of the written form. We hope you enjoy our soirees through the ins and outs of our industry and underground. Each episode aims to further the conversations from our mag, but this is also very much an open discussion. We would love nothing more than to hear your opinions, thoughts, experiences, observations, achievements, or even calamities about this culture we all immerse ourselves in. You can do this by visiting the brand new feature listing tab on our new website. Here, you can revisit each episode and join in the interactive open chat box. If you don't feel like putting it all on the line in a public forum, that's cool. Our inbox is always open too. If you've had your ear to the ground and you've heard of us before, firstly, we love you. We appreciate your support to no ends and it's great to have you. Secondly, you'll be aware that we've just unleashed our fourth issue onto the city streets. This edition puts the magnifying glass over the festivals and event space in Victoria, an industry that so many of us hold dear to our sense of personal and communal identities, and also an industry which has felt the full brunt of a global shutdown. We spoke to a wide spectrum of legends who operate under this umbrella. Leading festival organisers, directors of regional and humble community events, as well as industry and accessibility advocates. Like always, upon completing and sending another mag off to print, I couldn't help but feel as though we had barely scratched the surface. So to continue this conversation, we're going to ground this issue within some socio-cultural context. We understand that each conversation we have is part of a forever evolving dynamic. I can only speak for myself, but I'd also like to believe that each of our writers, guests, or even graphic contributors go through a small process of learning and reflection while working on their stories or designs as we contextualize what it means to be a creative and a human in this city. But personal reflection is only the first step as we start to imagine and understand our environments moving forward. And today's guest will help us do just that. It's my pleasure to introduce Fabian Canizo. Fabian is a sociologist at both Monash University and RMIT. Majority of his academic work has been centered around modern day concepts of work-life balance and barriers around meaningful employment for youth in particular. His expertise regularly finds him working closely with the creative industries, and his latest project has been contracted by the Australian Festivals Association, or the AFA. It comes at a time of immense unknowns, and helps us come to an understanding of just how the impact on these industries disseminates throughout the fabric of their communities. Fabian? Thanks for joining us today, mate. Thanks very much, Jack. Good to be here. Cool. So I'll jump straight into it. Um, I think it's fair to say that the music and creative industries are messy enough to navigate uh, at the best of times, but 
These past two years have also presented external challenges, the likes of which we've never seen. From what I can understand about your most recent project with the AFA, you're investigating the impacts of these recent events. Can you maybe give us some brief details of the research project itself and what your role is? Yeah, all right. So with this project, we were essentially contracted by the AFA to scope out, get a perspective um, on the number and nature of festivals, music festivals um, that are around Victoria. So initially, we were sort of asked to define what a music festival was ourselves and just sort of very broadly seek out what was out there. Um, but ultimately, the goal of the project was actually to define a typology, a different set of uh, you know, types of what music festivals might be and therefore to help the AFA to, I suppose, in some ways, perhaps more carefully target their support and funding and so forth to the sector. Mm -hmm. So that's broadly what it was about. Um, what we did involved a lot of Googling, a lot of contacting uh, festival organisers, um, city councils, Parks Victoria, all, mm -hmm. all manner of bodies who might be aware of or be involved with organising these festivals. So, um, yeah, it was just sort of a lot of grunt work in that sense. And yeah, so we were lucky enough to have Julia Robinson, the general manager of the AFA, speak with our writer Margarita in our latest issue. Julia was the head honcho behind the I Lost My Gig initiative, mm. which actually sounds quite similar to your project in the sense that... Um, it was gathering information for a governing body, um, except in their case, it was for the government itself. Uh, can you maybe explain to those who might not be so in tune with the more nitty gritty academic side of things, just how important these types of research projects are and the kind of things they tell us about the real world issues that creatives are currently facing? Yeah, so I suppose a project like ours and um, similar academic projects are quite useful in giving those who are in decision-making positions a sense of what's going on, um, you know, in some cases on the ground with um, projects that look more closely at what people are doing in the music industries, how they're, you know, working, what kind of problems they're encountering, um, or, you know, in another case, like a project like ours, which seems to give them a kind of broader overview of what's happening in the sector. So if someone were to um, be sitting on one of these decision-making panels or even just in, you know, sort of public discourse and say a music festival, they might have a notion in their mind of what that means. And, you know, when that's happening with someone just talking to their mates, it's not really a big deal. Like we can always talk through and work out what we mean mm. by these ideas. When we're talking about decision-making bodies, having misconceptions about what a music festival might be or um, who might be involved in doing that could have real big implications for those actually putting on these festivals on the ground. So mm. I think that's where the value of this research sort of comes from. It's, it's sort of giving that sort of broad perspective. And this isn't your first role within a project such as this. As I discovered in our email chain, you've worked closely with Dr. Catherine Strong, who was one of my former tutors at RMIT. Um, but you have, you've also investigated issues within the broader social and economic foundations of creative industries pre-COVID. Mm. So have you seen your findings from previous research become a factor in this most recent study? 
and have they shed any light on any underlying issues that we should be taking into account? Um, yes, look, there was one recent study which we did just at the beginning of COVID, which was um, understanding the Victorian music industries during COVID-19. So I think in that particular study, I mean, in some ways we found a lot of things that we were expecting to find. We found that people were really struggling in the music industries around yeah. COVID. Um, but we started to also find some more granular information around different uh, different people within the industries, different job roles they had and how that was playing into how people were experiencing COVID. So, you know, while we may be very familiar with the image, for example, of um, musicians having venues shut down and being out of work and struggling for those reasons, um, the group that we found sort of were most in need of some kind of support and direction, um, you know, from decision-making, governing bodies and so forth, were more likely to be those who are actually doing the live music support. So those running venues, lighting and sound technicians, a lot of sort of um, hospitality and also behind the scenes technical support. People who don't tend to stand in the limelight mm -hmm. of music, you know, um, shows and therefore might sort of be out of out of mind a little bit when um, we're sort of considering, uh, you know, uh, I suppose, more visible people to sort of support. So I'm thinking back to sort of Guy Sebastian's appearance with Scott Morrison and sort of promoting yeah. economic support for venues. But, yeah. um, you know, as, as Guy Sebastian said during that media conference, you know, I've got my whole team behind me here. So it's not just myself that's being supported by this. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the entire support staff. And we found that that group was, in fact, um, those sort of, yeah, most in need of um, some support and direction yeah. there. Guy, we all know you're a great talent, but... Um... The business of entertainment is a tough one. It is. Well, I guess there's such a, a large ecosystem that sits underneath what we do. And, and it was great to get the opportunity to speak to you guys because, you know, to give you that understanding and for you to respond so quickly was, was, was great to see. And I definitely felt heard, you know, as, as an artist. And, and, and I felt like you guys were asking so many questions to get a real great understanding of, of what it takes to put on a show. Because to stand on a stage like this, it, it does, it takes about six to 12 months um, of planning. And, and then there's, there's people who drive the trucks that do the rigging, the lighting, the sound guys. There's such a, a vast amount of highly skilled people who are affected mm. if we can't get the show back on the road. But also if there isn't a bit of support mm. In the meantime, while we're trying to get that happening, so we thank you so much for for doing everything you've done. So, despite what people might think of Kai Sebastian representing the music industry and giving Scomo pats on the back, what types of support did you find that these different segments of the music industry needed? Um, it can be quite difficult to know. I mean, there's often this distinction that um state premiers will make between the responsibilities of the federal and the state level. So where the federal seems responsible for income support, which affects a lot more of those in the music industry that are either self-employed, like musicians themselves. Um, and on the state level, they're more often thinking about, you know, how can we support small businesses? They'll often phrase it. So we're thinking they're more about, say, venue owners or music recording industry companies and so forth. Um, so... And what we tend to find is that a lot of the support that goes more directly, say, to musicians or in some cases sole contractors, but certainly those who are doing it through gigs, um, is more often it's things like um, Newstart or what became um, 
JobKeeper and later on, of course, you know, the Job Seeker supplement as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, when we're thinking about, I suppose, where support's coming from. We need to think about the kind of employment contracts that these people are working under and um, how different kinds of support might actually impact them. And you did mention there's the arts industry is massive, is a massively highly casualized workforce, mm. um, which can be riddled with issues of precarity, really. Um, and kind of led to initially a lot of people questioning whether they were going to stay in the industry. Mm. And it was one of the things I found quite interesting with some of your survey answers was that it was more the support staff and live music business workers, like you said, who had considered exiting rather than the musical talent itself, despite musical talent being at the forefront of these issues. Mm. If Do you see this um, as something that speaks to something deeper about the types of participation that we're seeing within the music machine? Yeah, I mean, the, the reason for those differences are going to be complex, but I suppose there are some general patterns that I perceive in how people um, engage in employment, the kind of contracts that they're employed under. So whereas someone who's working in that kind of live music business role, say they are working as um, lighting or sound technical Mm -hmm. support, maybe they're working behind the bar, they're more likely to have an employer who pays their wage or um, at least be working as a subcontractor on a reliable basis for, um, for a contracting agency. And so in that instance, um, forms of support, you know, like job seeker and job, uh, job keeper in particular were quite valuable mm. for those working in l- the music themselves. Um, I mean, I'm speculating here perhaps that it would be more likely that we'd see people in those roles also working other jobs outside of the music industry. So yeah, the likelihood to leave may have been shielded somewhat by having employment outside of the sector. Whereas, yeah, again, those in sort of the more live music business roles are perhaps more likely to be directly invested in the sector and therefore needing to look outside the sector for work when COVID hit, as opposed mm. to already kind of finding that balance between live music work and and sort of other work. Mm. Yeah. And within your research as well, I saw that there was a sort of wish list for regional creatives um, where they had sort of a desire for both improved working conditions, better pay, better hours, um, improved access to benefits and job security. But then also almost contradictory to this, there was also a desired change in the culture of the industry itself to be more inclusive and to shift the focus away from profit to shared values. Mm. Um, Does this kind of indicate some confusion as to what the direction for regional arts or just arts institutions in general is? I think it indicates that there is some um, conflict in how participants were feeling about how their work was being valued in the sector. So Mm. they're feeling both that there is uh, not the kind of support available when um, they really needed it, but also that that stems from a more systemic issue. It's not just about... um, the local council, the state government offering the right kinds of grants, but rather a kind of discourse around popular music more generally mm. that, you know, this is a music business as opposed to something like a piece of cultural heritage that needs to be invested in. Mm. And so I think that's where that kind of sense of um, 
conflict was sort of coming from in participants, sort of feeling that, okay, I respect my own work and I feel like I should deserve to be supported and that this should continue through difficult times, but also that kind of on some level of recognition that there is an undervaluing of the arts and undervaluing of especially popular music in that sense. Mm, totally. And that, that kind of leads me into my next question. I'll drag it back into the festival context, but we'll stay regional because we, one of our writers, Ingrid, spoke with Gwyn Roberts, who is the director of the Castlemaine State Festival, and they spoke about utilising regional arts and events to our collective advantage rather than feeding into a city-country divide that more often than not benefits a metropolitan type of narrative. Mm. And what I found interesting in her article is that there seemed to be a romanticisation of regional arts that is sold back to city slickers like mm. us. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't necessarily work in the best interests of those in remote artistic communities. Mm. This ability to be a big fish in a small pond provides them with resources and time and space that they wouldn't, wouldn't normally get within uh, a very busy metropolitan context. Um, and then the festival happening in a regional context, again, is like the festival. Festivals always are great when the destinations, when they are something outside the norm, and the norm currently is the metropolitan experience. And so you're going to some other place to, I guess, enter you know, to suspend the rules of your life for a while. From your research, um, what were your takes on the impacts upon regional arts in so-called Victoria or Australia? And are these new problems or are they just now being exacerbated by the pandemic? Look, it's a really good question. Certainly in our most recent study of festivals in Victoria, um, when we surveyed, we sort of tried to work out what kinds of festivals were occurring in the regions versus more in metropolitan Melbourne. And there were certainly a lot more festivals that tried to sell towards um, this, this image of sort of folk or country values. So a great number of folk festivals, um, uh, cigar box jams, Celtic festivals, Scottish festivals, yeah. who try to sort of, yeah, um, to, to, to draw on that. So... Um, I mean, I'm not entirely sure, though, the answer to your question, but I know that this is sort of a, a key way that um, regional music events do try and market and sell themselves. And there was another point that Gwyn made during that interview that they were sort of, regional festivals were sort of at an advantage compared to the city um, when lockdown happened because they had the space, they had less mm -hmm. population density, but... At the same time, I noticed in your study that it was regional arts workers that initially saw themselves at a severe disadvantage when COVID hit, just due to their lack of connection with like bustling city hubs of musicians, yeah. really. Um, do you think that that sentiment has changed over time during COVID, or do you still think there are some deep-seated issues that we need to reconcile with our regional arts sector? Yeah, um... Again, a hard one because I don't know if we can describe regional arts as, as part of a music business, as sort of one entity. Mm. So if there are regional arts um, hubs, for example, that do depend on 
uh, city tourism mm. or perhaps um, regional musicians who do travel to the city or interact with the city spaces as part of their business. They're in a very different position to those who perform for regional crowds and sort of mm. might see themselves in a quite fortunate position during COVID because they're... Um, their businesses are essentially less affected than those who are mm. interacting with city spaces. So I think that's the complexity there. But um, because of that, I don't think there's a really clear answer I can give yeah. to the question. Yeah. It sort of sounds like we're leaning towards what might have to be a more decentralised model, which treats these issues separately in a, in a more targeted way, I guess. Yeah, look, certainly towards a model that is more aware of the context that regional um, artists and sort of regional um, cultural events occur within, definitely. Mm. So we spent a lot of time talking, I guess, about the issues of the music industry. Mm. But um, I think on the other side of all that, there's some really obvious opportunities for improvement. Um, the notion of a cultural reset um, was something that came up multiple times throughout the conversations that took place um, in the production of Issue 4. What do you think addressing, well, firstly, what do you think these areas for opportunity really are? And what do you think addressing these issues actually looks like? Um, so in terms of a cultural reset, I, I think that the cultures that have been documented um, around gender inequality, um, racialized and ethnic inequality as well in the music industries, something we certainly need to be thinking about um, across our past couple of studies. It's something indeed that our research participants have spoken directly to us about. Um, they're kind of um, both, uh, I suppose, saddened that COVID has impacted their day-to-day -day routines and their business, their livelihoods. So, But they also have this sort of hopeful sense of an opportunity that maybe this could be the kind of pause in you know, business as usual that's needed to really get venue owners um, to, to get other actors in the industry as well, thinking about how do we now reopen these spaces? How do we move forward um, by redesigning our industries to be more inclusive, open, um, fair spaces for musicians who want to participate, but also then for, um, for audience members who want to feel safe and welcome in our music industry spaces. In terms of what that might actually look like on the ground, um, unfortunately for us, it's uh, it's perhaps in some ways the subject of a further study, but certainly there are other researchers who are looking into um, cultures of sexual harassment, cultures of gender-based mm. violence and racialized violence in our industries. And um, I mean, they're, they're again, quite stuck at this or not, they're not quite stuck, but um, in terms of our own research, we're quite stuck at this point of thinking, is this something that we can sort of deal with on a case-by-case -case basis, you know, through education for different actors of the industry and mm. support to sort of create more inclusive spaces? Or is this something that needs to occur at a much more sort of fundamental level? Um, and just how I might do that is a, is a very good question. Yeah, I think that's a good note to end on because there are still so many questions and the world keeps on turning um thank you for your time Fabian. all right no problem hello homies we hope you enjoyed tuning into our first episode of head threads 
If you'd like to delve a little bit deeper into what we do, you can head to our new website at headthreadsmag.com. Here, you can join the conversation by engaging with our Listen Page chat box, purchase any of our print magazine back catalogue, or sign up to our mail-out newsletter that's going to be hitting acoustic inboxes real soon. We'll also be announcing our official launch party, so chances are you'll get first dibs on some pretty special ticket discounts as well. Your support is what keeps us going. If you have the money, please support local publications. Your purchases are directly supporting and encouraging independent grassroots journalism. All of our contributors are paid. They're pretty amazing, and we really want this to become an industry standard practice amongst such a diluted space. No one likes their butter spread thin, so lay it on thick for us. Much love from the Head Threads team. Until next time. Yes, and looking forward to our duets and... <laughs> <laughs>